Well, here we are again, folks, not even two full days after going over the district court's findings against the FTC, and almost too much has happened to summarize and analyze in a single video. Almost. Now once again, I'm Richard Hogue, Corporate Transactions Attorney, Founding and Managing Member of the Hogue Law Business Law Firm of beautiful Northville, Michigan. I'm also a proud gamer here to break down all of the twists and turns of the biggest deal in gaming history with you all here in Virtual Legality. But before we dive in, I do want to thank all of the wonderful supporters who help make Virtual Legality possible, either on Patreon, Player, or as a YouTube member. Your support literally makes these videos happen, and I couldn't do it without you. Special thanks to Karen Paulson for sponsoring today's video. If, after watching, you want to support yourself, we have all the links down below. Okay, when we last left off, the FTC was losing hard in federal court as Judge Corley found not only that the FTC had failed to show that MSABK would lessen competition, but also that the deal was likely to benefit consumers overall. There was some question as to whether the FTC would bother to appeal such a thorough dismantling, but realistically the agency's present aggression level left it at not much of a question at all. And so on July 12th, as you can see here reported in The Verge, the FTC gave notice to the district court that it was to appeal the court's decision to the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. Now, as a brief aside here, it's probably a good idea to talk about the structure of the federal court system, or as it's described here on the Justice website, once the federal district court has decided a case, the case can be appealed to a United States Courts of Appeals. There are 12 federal circuits that divide the country into different regions. Each circuit court has multiple judges ranging from six on the first circuit to 29 on the ninth circuit. Circuit court judges are appointed for life by the president and confirmed by the Senate. Any case may be appealed to the circuit court once the district court has finalized a decision some issues can be appealed before a final decision by making an interlocutory appeal. Appeals to circuit courts are first heard by a panel consisting of three circuit court judges. Parties file briefs to the court arguing why the trial court's decision should be affirmed or reversed. After the briefs are filed, the court will schedule oral argument in which the lawyers come before the court to make their arguments and answer the judge's questions. So, what we just saw and read was an opinion of a U.S. district court, the lowest level in the system, and the entry point for basically all federal lawsuits. As you can see here, once the district court has made a decision like no injunction for you, it can be appealed to the Circuit Court of Appeals, so named because the judges used to ride in circuits to the various district courts to hear those appeals. If your suit is in California like this one, that means you appeal to the Ninth Circuit. It's the legal equivalent of asking to see the manager. But here, the manager is instructed not simply to repeat all the steps that have already been taken, such as determining facts. Instead, they are specialists in the legal standards in question. Importantly, since an injunction is a special power of the court exercised in the interest of fairness or justice, the court of appeals in this particular case is to give deference to the discretion or judgment of the below court, primarily checking only for abuse. Back to the question at hand then, the appeals process kicks off with a notice to the district court that is little more than simply saying that we're going to the manager. And indeed, that's how it reads. Notice is hereby given that the Plaintiff Federal Trade Commission, FTC, appeals to the United States Courts of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit from the court's opinion dated July 10th, 2023, and entered on the court's docket on July 11th, 2023, denying the FTC's request for a preliminary injunction pursuant to the Federal Trade Commission Act, Section 13B. So essentially, this is just putting a flag on the wall that says, we are going to your manager. Sorry about that. We disagree with you. But though we can't glean much from this document, we have a secret weapon. The best chance for an appellant to win its argument, indeed often the only chance, is if it quote-unquote exhausts its potential remedies before asking. Again, think of this as the manager not coming out of their office until the complaining party here the FTC has really tried to settle things with the salesperson on the floor first. In the law, that means the loser in court has to ask the original court, Judge Corley, to halt its own decision based on the losing party's arguments that the original court got it wrong. Now, as you can imagine, that very rarely results in the court deciding that its 50-plus page opinion or determination of facts was wrongly decided just a day later, but it does give us a preview of what we can expect the arguments to be in front of the Court of Appeals. So we'll take a look at that motion. First, we see the motion is to get the deal enjoined or prevented until the Ninth Circuit can decide their appeal. Now that's moderately less than the original PI request in that it has a termination time, but it's mostly the same as what we just saw decided and denied by the court. Or in the document itself, we see Federal Trade Commission hereby does move the court for expedited relief in the form of an entry of a Rule 62D injunction pending resolution of the FTC's appeal from the court's opinion. So this is the district court being asked to stop its own opinion to block the deal for 
an indeterminate amount of time until the Ninth Circuit can actually decide on the overall appeal. What is the issue to be decided? Whether you should issue an injunction preventing Microsoft and Activision from consummating their proposed acquisition or substantially similar acquisition until the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals has had the opportunity to adjudicate the FTC's appeal. Now, importantly, the Ninth Circuit is the busiest circuit in the United States, and an appeal could take a very long time indeed, perhaps a year or even more. So what is the basis for their request? Well, as we expected, it's primarily you got it wrong, court, and the manager is ultimately going to agree with us. The FTC believes all four factors that generally look at injunctions support it here. We shall see. Or as the document says, pursuant to the court's modification of the temporary restraining order previously entered, defendants may consummate Microsoft's proposed acquisition of Activision after 11.59 p.m. on July 14th, 2023. As of this recording, that's tonight. Accordingly, the FTC respectfully requests a ruling on this motion as soon as possible. The FTC respectfully submits that this court's denial of the FTC's motion for preliminary injunction raises serious, substantial issues for the Court of Appeals to resolve. An injunction pending appeal is necessary to preserve the status quo, which would otherwise be irreparably altered if the proposed acquisition were consummated during appellate review. What are the standards here? While an appeal is pending from an interlocutory order or final judgment that refuses an injunction, the court may grant an injunction on terms for bond or other terms that secure the opposing party's rights. Now, that's not really a standard. That just says you are allowed to do this if you want to. Motions for injunctive relief under Rule 62D are evaluated using the traditional four-factor test applicable to motions to stay, and you may have seen this on this channel before. One, whether the stay applicant has made a strong showing that he is likely to succeed on the merits, that they're ultimately going to win their case that Microsoft times Activision Blizzard King is a violation of the United States antitrust laws. Two, whether the applicant will be irreparably injured absent a stay. Will the Federal Trade Commission be unable to do what it needs to do to prevent bad things from happening to consumers in competition if this deal is allowed to go through? Which most pertinently for our conversation is a determination of whether or not asking Microsoft to divest Activision Blizzard King and all of its assets is an acceptable solution to this if it's later determined to be illegal. Three, whether issuance of the stay will substantially injure the other parties interested in the proceeding. If you issue this injunction, if you give us what we want, will it hurt Microsoft and Activision? And four, where the public interest lies. Those are the four standards here for purposes of this motion for injunctive relief. Here, says the FTC, all four factors support it. As I said before, we shall see. First, their argument is based on standard of review. You may have seen some coverage of this on social media or at more substantial outlets. FTC would face tough appeal of Microsoft Activision order, experts say to Reuters. But in this Reuters article, which was linked to me a number of times on Twitter, a lot of power of the opinion on appeal comes down to an analysis of the factual records and antitrust scholar Daniel Crane of the University of Michigan Law School. And disclaimer, that's my alma mater. I don't remember if I took an, a class with Professor Crane or not, but that is the school with, from which I got my legal degree. Appeals courts generally defer to U.S. judges on factual records, said antitrust lawyer Luke Haskamp. The facts in this case seem to all break in Microsoft and Activision's way, he said. In her 53-page order, Corley said it was not enough for the FTC to argue that a merger might lessen competition. The FTC must show the merger will probably substantially lessen competition. Several legal scholars questioned that standard, saying that the U.S. antitrust law required the FTC to prove the proposed deal may harm competition, not that it will. University of Baltimore Law School professor Robert Landy said will probably is not the same as may, and the judge got the standard wrong. Now, this law school professor is correct that will probably and may are not the same. However, we can't just read the laws on these things, unfortunately. I wish we could, but we can't. So what the law says here is no person may do an acquisition of this type. I'm going to shorten the legalese here a little bit. If the effect of such acquisition may be substantially to lessen competition, or tend to create monopoly. Now, for one thing, we can't eliminate substantially from the verb here may be substantially. So by just suggesting that the correct question is may, that doesn't give full weight to all the language in the Clayton Act itself. So when you see somebody saying it's just may not will, that's true, it's may not will, but it's may be substantially to lessen competition or tend to create a monopoly, not just may. So will probably may be the wrong standard. This professor might be accurate there, but it's not necessarily the wrong standard just because will probably and will is not the same word as may. We don't just read these things 
as they are given because to read them as broadly as they are written would mean that every deal is illegal. Or as the court determined in 1989, Federal Trade Commission versus Elder Grain Inc. We're gonna talk a little bit about some of the things the court found here. First, with respect to the preliminary injunction itself, Section 13B of the Federal Trade Commission Act directs the district judge in passing on a request by the FTC for an injunction pending administrative proceedings to weigh the equities and determine the commission's ultimate likelihood of success. Such a directive is rather empty without specification of how the evaluation of the equities and the evaluation of the merits are to be combined, a matter on which the scanty legislative history of Section 13B is silent. The case law, also scanty, contains such statements as, when the commission demonstrates a likelihood of ultimate success, a counter showing of private equities alone would not suffice to justify denial of a preliminary injunction barring the merger. Now, no one could quarrel with this statement, which this court endorsed in an opinion issued several days after the oral argument in the present case, but it may say less than it seems to say. While not giving controlling weight to private equities, of course not, the cases give them some weight, and the court and Warner quite properly observed that private injuries are entitled to serious consideration. In suits under antitrust statutes that are silent on the standard for granting or denying preliminary injunctions, we and other courts have used a sliding scale approach. The greater the plaintiff's likelihood of success on the merits when those merits are ultimately determined after a final trial, the less harm from denial of the preliminary injunction the plaintiff needs show in relation to the harm that the defendant will suffer if the preliminary injunction is granted. So for example, if the balance of harms is even, the plaintiff is entitled to the injunction upon showing that he has a better than 50% chance of winning. The district judge thought the FTC likely to succeed on the merits. He then weighed the harms in the balance and the balance tipped against the acquisition. He thought, in fact, that the public interest in preventing an anti-competitive acquisition could not be outweighed by what he described as the defendant's purely private financial interests in completing the acquisition. By doing so, he collapsed the issue of equity or relative harm into the merits, for his view was that an anti-competitive acquisition is against the public interest and private interests can never trump public ones. This is not the best way to analyze the equities in an antitrust case or any other kind of case. So here we have the court in the Seventh Circuit, not controlling over our case, but it's still informative to how the courts look at these questions, struggling with how to balance whether or not to issue a preliminary injunction because the statute is pretty naked on this. Balance the equities, balance the success of the merits, go nuts, court, figure it out. It is always better to avoid relying on vague concepts and instead to ask concretely who would be helped and who hurt by a proposed action. Here, who would be helped and who would be hurt by allowing and who by forbidding a challenged acquisition to go through before what are often protected administrative proceedings are completed? In other words, what are the consequences of the alternative courses of action that the district judge might take? And to get to the language that we're talking about here, section seven forbids mergers and other acquisitions, the effect of which may be to lessen competition substantially. A certainty, even a high probability need not be shown. Of course, the word may should not be taken literally, for if it were, every acquisition would be unlawful. You can't just use the word may to understand how Section 7 of the Clayton Act works. But the statute requires a prediction and doubts are to be resolved against the transaction. So it's possible that the arguments that are going to be made on the standard here are going to be successful in the Ninth Circuit, but it's not as easy as the Reuters or other social media folks might suggest if you were only reading them. So let's take a look at what the FTC wound up arguing, because as we will see, they are not just Twitter lawyers or other folks in my DMs. They are not going to argue this May argument specifically. They're going to argue the overall standard. The FTC respectfully identifies the following examples of errors in the court's opinion. First, the court applied the wrong legal standard to this Section 13b proceeding. Under Ninth Circuit precedent, the court's task in a Section 13b proceeding is not to make a final determination on whether the proposed merger violates Section 7 of the Clayton Act. Rather, as the court correctly recognized at the outset of these proceedings, this is in fact quoted in the opinion, the FTC can meet its burden of demonstrating a likelihood of success by presenting evidence sufficient to raise serious, substantial, difficult questions regarding the anti-competitive effects of the proposed transaction. Accordingly, the court does not resolve conflicts in the evidence. The question is simply whether the FTC has met its burden of showing a likelihood of success on the merits. But when the court turned to whether the FTC had made a sufficient showing as to anti-competitive effects, the court inexplicably deviated from Warner Communications. Instead, the court applied the standard applicable to trials on the antitrust merits, relying on government cases seeking permanent injunctions. In that context, the federal district court bears the responsibility for determining the antitrust merits in the first instance. There is no separate administrative proceeding to follow. 
For example, the United States sought a permanent injunction in AT&T. The government there had to burden to prove the ultimate merits, not merely to raise serious substantial questions as to the merits. And that the court here held the FTC to the same burden from AT&T, holding that with this proposed vertical merger, the outcome turns on whether, notwithstanding the proposed merger's conceded pro-competitive effects, the government has met its burden of establishing through case-specific evidence that the merger at this time and in this remarkably dynamic industry is likely to substantially lessen competition in the manner it predicts. Says the FTC, that is decidedly not the standard applicable to this preliminary Section 13b proceeding, and the court erred in holding the FTC to the standard applicable to a full trial on the merits of a vertical merger. So what are they really saying here? What they're saying is that the court shouldn't be looking at the evidence as hard as it did, which is at least an argument. It's not the May argument we saw from Reuters and others. Now, I think it's wrong insofar as I think the standard proposed would result in the FTC winning every preliminary injunction effectively automatically, as presumably the agency is not insane and could at least present a colorable story as to how a deal might harm competition if the court is forbidden from weighing alternative evidence at all. But for that reason and others, that's not the standard and can't be, even in the case they are quoting. This may be a shock, but we expect judges to exercise judgment, and both the Antitrust and Federal Trade Acts contain within them the notion that the judiciary will weigh and consider all aspects of a case the FTC puts before it. I can certainly understand the frustration here, but this seems an unlikely avenue for successful attack. That said, I also understand why they took the swing that they did, because of all the things in this document, if they can convince two out of three appeals court judges that they are right, it's the thing most likely to result in a remand, asking the district court to try again under the new standard, or even overturn. Low percentage chance of success, but high reward if successful. Next, we see they say the court erred as a matter of law when it concluded that Microsoft was likely to foreclose rivals in the market for multi-game subscription library services, but found that asserted benefits to Microsoft's Game Pass customers outweighed that foreclosure. As the Supreme Court has explained, says the FTC, the primary vice of a vertical merger is that by foreclosing the competitors of either party from a segment of the market otherwise open to them, the arrangement may act as a clog on competition, which deprives rivals of a fair opportunity to compete. Now, one does wonder when you look at this quote, what segment of the market otherwise open to them is being foreclosed if, for instance, a combined Microsoft Activision holds Call of Duty off of a PlayStation Plus or similar. But the FTC doesn't really grapple with that. It tends to collapse various of these quotes into foreclosure of Call of Duty is its own sin under the antitrust laws. And that's not, in fact, the case. They assert that they only needed to raise questions about whether foreclosure was likely. But here the FTC conflates two separate forms of foreclosure. The court found that Call of Duty, the input here, would be foreclosed slash made exclusive, but that doesn't say anything on its own about the lessening of competition. It would only be if competitors were foreclosed or eliminated that the FTC could possibly meet its burden here, and the court quite expressly found that the Microsoft contracts and contract offers prevented that eventuality. You don't have to agree with the district court, and in fact, the Court of Appeals might not, to see that the court's finding was within the court's considerable discretion. Then we move on to talking about Brown Shoe. Now, if you don't know the Brown Shoe case, I don't blame you, but it's a case primarily known for establishing that practical indicia can be used to establish antitrust harm. Read as the FTC does here, its breath would swallow the bulk of antitrust jurisprudence, but more importantly, its assertion that making Call of Duty exclusive to Game Pass subscriptions is closely analogous to a tying contract these propositions together constitute a finding that the combined firm is likely to foreclose rivals from Call of Duty in the market for multi-game library subscription services. That alone should suffice for the court to enjoin the transaction pending the FTC's review of the merits. One where you can only get the product you want by buying the one you don't is plainly untrue when considering that Call of Duty will be available on both a buy-to-play and cloud basis should the deal proceed. That said, that very reasonable rebuke is perhaps pre prevented by the notion that subscription is its own market but that in and of itself also serves to highlight just how silly an assertion that is. So you kind of have a spiral effect here of what the court accepted were interesting markets offered by the Federal Trade Commission, which may or may not survive an ultimate appeals judgment, but also what effect it has to accept those markets when we're talking about things like, is it a tying contract to say Call of Duty might only be available on Game Pass? I wouldn't say so, but if subscription services are their own market for video games, then it's possible that you could argue that you can only get Call of Duty as a subscription player through Game Pass, then you're tying all of Game Pass services to Call of Duty. I don't think it's a particularly strong argument because of the reality of the gaming industry, but it's one that you can potentially make 
based on the assumptions and grants that the court gave in its original opinion. Now, the FTC continues saying the court's single paragraph addressing Brown shoe foreclosure factors simply asserts that the FTC does not make any new arguments not considered above, but that is incorrect. The court notably failed to address the nature and purpose of the vertical merger, a factor the Supreme Court termed most important to examine. If the vertical arrangement resembles that tying contract, the Supreme Court makes clear that it is inherently anti-competitive and is likely substantially to lessen competition, although only a relatively small amount of commerce is affected. And yet the court accepted for preliminary injunction purposes, it is likely Call of Duty will be offered exclusively on Game Pass. Therefore, the court found that a combined firm is likely to require purchasing a Game Pass subscription if a user wants to access Call of Duty via subscription service. That, offers the FTC, is quite analogous to a tying clause. I disagree. I think most people that are thinking about this reasonably, the whole entirety of the gaming industry, and if you can go buy Call of Duty on Xbox or on PlayStation or anywhere else that you want, that's not a tying contract requiring you to play Game Pass in order to get access to Call of Duty. But based on the kind of hypothetical scenario in which the court has allowed for a subscription service separate market, I see why the FTC makes the argument. Similarly, the court discounted evidence of Microsoft's past conduct, suggesting the nature and purpose of the arrangement was akin to a tie, again contravening the Supreme Court's express reliance on such evidence to prohibit a vertical merger. The court erred further in balancing the likely foreclosure in the subscription services market against the alleged benefits from putting Call of Duty on Game Pass. According to the court, adding Call of Duty to Game Pass will increase Game Pass users, which in turn will give Microsoft more incentive to invest in other games. Even if a merger allows the merged entity to provide better services to its customers, the Clayton Act does not excuse mergers that lessen competition or create monopolies simply because the merged entity can improve its operations. And that's undoubtedly true. You can't just violate the law and do bad things, even if it would help your own business. But the question is whether you're doing bad things in the first instance. And the FTC keeps skipping past that to basically assert that they have shown that this, there are significant anti-competitive effects here when the court expressly found that that was not the case. If there's any fundamental flaw in this document and potentially the appeals overall, it's that the Federal Trade Commission continues to pound on the table and just say, yes, mountains of evidence. We know that we've shown that there are anti-competitive effects here and the court is just ignoring them. On the next point, that the court erred in relying on Microsoft's offers to and agreements with rivals to find that the FTC had failed to raise substantial questions about incentive, I tend to agree. You heard me agree in a prior video. In particular, I agree with the thrust of the FTC's argument that we still have to look at the underlying post-transaction market environment. The problem for them, though, is that although the court said this, they also found that the FTC failed to provide evidence on these points. So while the FTC continues to claim that they have presented serious doubts and questions, the court itself very much disagrees. And such a finding should be well within its discretion. This isn't really an appellate type claim. It's not an issue with standards or legal analysis. It's them saying the court is wrong in its factual determination, which isn't really a subject for appellate review. First, says the FTC, such offers and agreements are not properly considered in deciding the issue of whether the FTC has raised substantial questions about incentive to foreclose. But I think they are. Second, even if they were properly considered, the court's analysis is inadequate as a matter of law. To preclude the FTC from showing a likelihood of success, Putative remedies would need to dispel any substantial doubts and serious questions about the transaction's legality. And here the FTC thinks those doubts and questions exist. The court basically doesn't. They set the proper standard, as the FTC acknowledges, in even this document. And then they say they, the court ignored it. But that's just a disagreement on how the court interpreted its responsibilities under that standard. So the FTC has got an uphill road already. And this document isn't helping them so much right now. Here the court instead, says the FTC, simply assumed from the existence of the agreements and offers that they are pro-competitive. For example, the court's assertion that the Sony offer is just as favorable as Sony's current deal with Activision has no support other than the court's own reading of a few of the offer's terms and ignores the evidence that the offer does not remedy the potential harms to competition in the console market, right? Because the court did not find that FTC had shown those potential harms to competition in the console market. This is all after the fact. Now, it is interesting if you look at that that they quote here from page 38 about the fact that the court says that the offer to Sony was just as favorable as the deal with Activision. That's interesting because page 38 is heavily redacted in the public opinion. We don't get to see any of this. We don't see this quote in that document as a for instance. And so the FTC is actually leaking out a bit of information that was otherwise redacted in the court's own delivery of its opinion, which is not great. If you're the FTC, it's not the end of the world. It's not great. Now, you'll also have heard me mention this next point with which I agree in the prior video. Here, the FTC points out that the court has its logic backwards with respect to partial foreclosure. 
Again, however, the FTC will face a stumbling block in that the court also found that they failed to present adequate evidence on the partial foreclosure question, making the logic error that we're going to discuss, in all likelihood, quote-unquote, harmless, or in other words, not changing the outcome. The FTC argues this point, but the appeal, at the appeals level, the court is unlikely to second-guess the district court's findings of fact. So what does the FTC say here? They say, second, the court erred as a matter of law in stating that if the FTC had not shown a financial incentive to engage in full, full foreclosure, then it is not shown a financial incentive to engage in partial foreclosure. Even assuming, arguendo, for the sake of argument, that the FTC had failed to submit evidence sufficient to raise substantial questions about full foreclosure, the court's statement about partial foreclosure is incorrect. Partial foreclosure is in fact less costly for the combined firm than for full foreclosure. While full foreclosure means giving up all revenues from the withheld input, partial foreclosure simply entails raising rivals' costs or degrading the input rivals may purchase relative to the foreclosing firm's product. They can still make money from Sony, as a for instance. The Supreme Court found a vertical merger violated Section 7 even where the merged firm was only financially incentivized to engage in partial foreclosure. That it's a possibility that that could happen, right? But the court here got its logic wrong by saying that if you can't prove full foreclosure, you can't prove partial foreclosure. I said that in the video that you already have seen in part of this playlist, but it's unlikely to change things. So it's unlikely that the appeals court is going to decide to overturn the court's findings based solely on this situation. Next, we see them talk a little bit about the record of evidence. The court weighed the evidence and found that Microsoft did not have the incentive to foreclose Call of Duty in the console market. The FTC said it showed that there were substantial questions, but that again isn't a legal argument as much as it's a kind of wailing of gnashing of teeth into the wind. The very nature of the court's opinion is a finding, in its mind, which remember is given deference for its discretion, that such questions and doubts were not raised. Then the FTC makes a list of other reversible errors. First, they say the court misapplied the law and ignored the FTC's evidence in evaluating the incentive to foreclose. They say the court erred as a matter of law when it found that the evidence of Microsoft's stated intent outweighed the evidence of incentive to foreclose. Although the court correctly identified the issue as being whether the combined firm has the incentive to foreclose rivals, the court erred as a matter of law when it relied on evidence of Microsoft's intent and when it found that such evidence outweighed the evidence of incentive to foreclose. Intent is not an element of a claim that a merger violates the antitrust laws. Honest intentions, business purposes, and economic benefits are not a defense to violations of an anti-merger law. And again, to the credit of the FTC, I think that's broadly correct, right? You can't just get out of a violation of antitrust law by saying, well, we intended to do good. It's for the greater good, whatever you want to say there. However, intent can help inform what the lay of the land, what the world looks like after the transaction. And the district court, in evaluating whether or not the FTC has a good case for showing that this merger is illegal, is to evaluate what the world looks like to the best of its predictive ability after the transaction takes place. And as the FTC admits at the end of this paragraph, knowledge of intent may help the court to interpret facts and to predict consequences. And evidence of the intent is relevant only to the extent it helps us to understand the likely effect of the monopolist's conduct. So. The FTC acknowledges that intent is useful here. They just disagree with the way that the court decided to use it. So I think the FTC, again, has a losing argument on an appellate level here because, again, the facts are really not something that can be disputed at the Court of Appeals. The court made this determination that the intent helps give information as to what Microsoft is likely to do with the Activision assets, and the FTC really doesn't have a legal argument against it in this portion of the document. They do assert that they have one, however. Contrary to this established law, the court reviewed and relied upon evidence of Microsoft's supposed intent as if intent itself were an element that the FTC was required to prove. And here again, I think that's a bit inaccurate because the court laid down a long list of reasons why it thought there were issues with what evidence the FTC had presented, including the statements of Microsoft's intent, but not limited to those statements. Now, the FTC does point out that the court maybe gave a little bit of additional weight than is needed to things like promises made in court that they won't take Call of Duty off the PlayStation console. Such promises, says the FTC, in or out of court have little or no probative value in assessing the incentive that a combined firm will face. Broadly, I think this is correct as incentive speaks of mathematical realities rather than intention, but it is perhaps too rote. As I said, the court's job is not simply to go down the line of checkboxes the FTC lays before it, but to determine if the FTC can show that a deal lessens competition. Intent is a part of determining what that world looks like post-transaction. Now, the FTC is right to suggest that those mere promises are of limited value on the question, even if made under oath. 
And I have to admit, it's quite bold to quote the Meta case in which the agency was so thoroughly beaten that they immediately rescinded their complaint. But as this was just one piece of the court's reasoning, I find it an unlikely appeals winner still. Here, the thoroughness of the district court is very much to the winner's advantage, whoever that winner would have been. The fact that it's a 50 plus page document and that the judge goes through all of this reasoning is very helpful to defeating an appeal on these questions. The FTC then states that the court gave it a burden of producing a smoking gun. The court committed reversible error when it improperly assigned the FTC the burden of producing a smoking gun document. But that is also not quite what happens in the court's opinion. There, the court noted that out of the millions of documents, there was not one indicating an intent to foreclose Call of Duty by Microsoft. The FTC tries to state that modeling for a loss in Activision content in PlayStation was that smoking gun. They say, the FTC introduced extensive evidence that Microsoft's top executives understood that they could lose money on sales of Activision content on PlayStation, but could recoup those losses with increased Game Pass subscribers and more revenue from Activision titles on Xbox consoles. Coming out of a meeting with Microsoft CEO and CFO, the Microsoft gaming finance team modeled the loss in revenues to the combined firm if revenues from Activision sales on Sony's PlayStation declined. This analysis, which was shared with Microsoft's top executives and planned to be shown to the board, demonstrated that Microsoft could lose revenue from Activision sales on PlayStation, contrary to the official deal valuation model presented to Microsoft's board, but could make up for those through a combination of increasing subscribers to Game Pass and shifting Activision revenues away from PlayStation to Xbox. The CFO testified that the number of new Game Pass subscribers and the shift in Activision revenues to Xbox that would be required to make up for revenues lost on PlayStation were both reasonable and achievable. This is as close to a smoking gun regarding analysis of incentive to foreclose as one is likely to see in a case of this kind. Now, the FTC tries to state that this modeling for a loss is the smoking gun, but modeling really can't ever be. We expect management charged as acting in a fiduciary capacity for billions of dollars in other people's money to model out a host of potentialities. If we hold such due diligence against them, then the expectation is that we'd see more risky and stupid behavior, not less. That can't be the intent of antitrust proceedings, particularly when asking for the exercise of regulatory powers. But more important, it's a finding of fact by the court, not a legal argument ripe for appeal. But speaking of errors, the FTC errs in arguing that by saying that at best, the record contains conflicting evidence on the anti-competitive effects of the merger, the court has admitted the FTC has demonstrated a likelihood of success. Anti-competitive effect is one component of evaluating the likelihood of success of an antitrust claim. And here, the FTC has established that the Ninth Circuit takes a pretty broad approach, but the court throughout found that anti-competitive effect was outweighed by pro-competitive ones, benefits to consumers. You don't have to agree with that, as indeed the FTC doesn't, but disagreement is again, not grounds for appeal. They keep trying to gotcha the court, but all of it sounds more of pounding on the table. And again, as I said above, I think that this is a place where these arguments are being made because a win here, as small a percentage chance as it might have, is where they're likely to get a remand or overturning. This is the biggest, highest reward if they could win on one of these kind of legal standards arguments because the rest is really just arguing about how the court decided to interpret the evidence. Lastly, remembering that even if the FTC could get the appeals court to agree that it was likely to see on the merits, there's still the whole balancing of the equities thing. The FTC argues that the court balanced things wrong. Good luck there. This is all within the court's head and within its discretion, so this is a tough argument to make. First, says the FTC, Section 13B places a lighter burden on the commission than that imposed on private litigants by the traditional equity standard. The commission need not show irreparable harm to obtain a preliminary injunction. Indeed, if you look at the court's opinion, at no point does the court ever tell the FTC that they have to get to irreparable harm. Yet the FTC says the court's equities analysis would effectively require the FTC to prove irreparable harm, contravening the statutory text and purpose. The court also erroneously looked at the FTC to point to beneficial economic effects, and they quote a case, the FTC cannot point to beneficial economic effects as a public equity. They continue, here the FTC submitted evidence that the proposed acquisition will lead to similar harms in the relevant markets. For example, as a current supplier of gaming content to Microsoft's rivals, Activision has access to competitively significant information from those rivals. Absent to stay, Microsoft will gain access to Activision's data and the competitive development and research plans of its rivals to which Activision is privy. As in vitriol, the public and competition will be irreparably harmed from any resulting halt to or slowdown of any future joint projects that Microsoft's rivals were working on with Activision. To the contrary, it would be difficult to prevent Microsoft from using the information it will obtain from Microsoft, presumably from Activision here, about its rivals in the relevant markets, even if a divestiture is subsequently ordered. So they're trying to establish 
even though the court said, look, if Activision is going to be kept separate, it's easy to divest afterwards. That information is going to change hands enough that Microsoft's going to be advantaged. Sony and Sony gamers are going to be disadvantaged. And so that's enough to get them past the, the finish line for getting a preliminary injunction. Yet the court failed to analyze the extent to which this product, predicted destruction would likely occur or the extent to which it would be remediable by the commission if it were to find the proposed acquisition unlawful. The FTC and the public interest will be irreparably harmed if the merger is allowed to proceed. If the proposed acquisition is consummated, the harm to the public begins immediately. The court here said, look, Call of Duty can't be pulled for at least a year since the deal goes through 2024 and there's no rush for a preliminary injunction. FTC says, no, there absolutely is because of this information transfer. If a preliminary injunction is not granted, Microsoft and Activision can begin to share confidential business information and long-term strategic planning information and can begin to make plans for exclusivity of Activision content. The harms in the market for multi-game subscription services will begin immediately upon consummation of the proposed acquisition as Microsoft and Activision begin operationalizing the full foreclosure that the court assumed is likely. Yeah, sorry, operationalizing is not a word I use very often. This will result in ongoing harm to consumers that will be difficult to remedy after the full litigation process runs its course. Now, interestingly, especially since the FTC was accused by the judge and in other circles of protecting Sony rather than consumers, it's not at all clear what harms the consumers face from Microsoft and Activision beginning to operationalize the full foreclosure that the court assumed is likely. Right? We can understand how that's going to hurt potential other competitors in the market, but we don't see how that harms consumers. And that's really the ambit of the FTC in this particular case in order to win on the merits of an antitrust action. Another example of immediate harm arises from Microsoft's gaining access to its rival sensitive information. Microsoft and its competitors currently share information with Activision to engage in pro-competitive innovations. Those rivals will likely stop sharing information with the combined firm. See the Jim Ryan deposition. Even if the FTC eventually wins on appeal, the harm to competition from shutting off the flow of information is an immediate competitive harm and the lost time and effort on innovation cannot later be restored, even if the merger is later unwound. Now, are these particularly strong cases here? I think not as strong as talking about the Call of Duty foreclosure because that's what they focused their their actual arguments on. These are at least a little bit novel to this document as compared to what we heard in the hearings. Entry of an injunction pending appeal will not substantially injure the defendants. Now, that's a tough argument to win, right? Microsoft and Activision won't be hurt if you give us an injunction. Defendants will not be substantially injured by the brief delay from plaintiff's appeal of this court's order. There is no evidence that the parties are required to abandon the proposed acquisition should the court grant a stay that extends past July 18th, 2023. Microsoft has publicly stated that it is seeking to stay its appeal of its United Kingdom's ruling against the merger. Microsoft's willingness to delay an appeal elsewhere supports finding that delay here will not substantially injure defendants. I don't think that's accurate at all, right? So we know, as we talked about in the last video, that Microsoft and the CMA have agreed to pause their appeal. But the fact that they both agreed to that and the fact that Microsoft agreed to it at all is strongly suggestive of the fact that Microsoft believes that they are fairly close to a settlement of some kind. And we'll talk about that a little bit later on in this very video. So saying, hey, they paused that appeal is evidence that they're not terribly concerned about timing is just simply inaccurate, I think. And I think a court will see right through that. An injunction is in the public interest. So basically, the FTC argues here that we represent the government, the government interests aligns with the public interest, and so an injunction is in the public interest. But it all depends on whether or not they're actually bringing a legitimate claim, and that all goes back up to the merits argument above. So it'll depend on whether the appeals court agrees with their legal standard argument more than anything here. But that's the state of play as it exists today. And again, that's just a preview of what they are likely to present to the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. It is not anything more important. It is not the appeal itself. This is a request of the court to change its minds, to issue an injunction pending the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, not that Ninth Circuit argument. Now that said, we do also have a Microsoft response to all this. It's considerably shorter. Here, Microsoft reminds the court that all of this rushing is the FTC's fault. Due to the compressed deadline, an exigency created by the FTC's delay first in bringing this case and then further delay in seeking the instant relief, defendants provide the following preliminary response. And they then quote what the court said, although the agreement allows either party to terminate the merger agreement if the transaction is not closed by July 18th, 2023, the FTC did not file this action to preliminary enjoin the merger until June 12th, 2023, less than six weeks before the termination date, as evidence that the FTC has at least slightly unclean hands here. Now, Microsoft doubles down on that, says, 
Rather than move quickly to seek relief pending appeal from the Ninth Circuit, the FTC dragged its heels, waiting three days. Of the four days the court provided to ask this court again, and for the same reasons, to enjoin the party's merger. I think that's a little bit unfair. The original delay is certainly worthy of consideration. The FTC knew it had a problem with this deal late last year and decided not to use the federal court system primarily because of this. They didn't really want the federal court system to evaluate their argument because it's not a particularly strong one. That said, once the court's decision comes down on the 10th, it's published on the 11th, I don't really see this as games playing by a government agency. Appealing on the 12th is actually impressively fast for an agency like the Federal Trade Commission, in my opinion. So I think Microsoft might be pushing a little hard on this point. I don't think it really is to their credit on this particular issue. The court has already explained why the FTC has come nowhere close to meeting its burden, sure. Perhaps bad for Sony, but good for Call of Duty gamers and future gamers we see again. Obviously, that was a big quote in the court's opinion. Microsoft then simply reminds the court of why it made its decision it did, and further, that the appellate process should be deferential to it. You see, appellate review of an order of denying a motion for preliminary injunction is limited and deferential. Specifically, as we will explain to the Ninth Circuit, the FTC does not identify a single legal error in this court's reasoning. Now, that's a pretty bold claim. I think the statement is good, but it's a bit too broad. I understand what they're trying to get at, that the bulk of the FTC's document collapses into simple disagreements on findings of fact, as we just talked about. But they did at least raise certain questions about the applicable legal standards. So this is very aggressive on the part of Microsoft. And it's the kind of aggression that, since you can look at what the FTC has provided, might be a little bit too much if you're sitting here at the court level. Now, of course, these documents don't matter that much because we all expect the court to simply deny this action. And we'll see, in fact, that that's, in fact, what the court did. Further, the court has already found that it would be inequitable to enter an injunction that could lead to the potential scuttling of the merger, and that this inequitable result was a separate, independent reason the FTC's motion must be denied. The FTC's new request to enjoin the merger for months or more, in fact, because of the busyness of the Ninth Circuit, you're probably looking at something closer to a year, would have the same effect of inequitability. And that's really all Microsoft has to say. They waited too long. You know why you made the decision you did, Your Honor, and just keep it the same as it is. And indeed, as mentioned here from a tweet in Charlie Intel, Judge Corley immediately denied the request. The FTC asked this court to enjoin the merger. The motion is denied. No explanation. You don't need to explain on this point. You already explained in your 53-page document why you made the decision you did. And so the judge is doing what she is supposed to do and keeping this moving so that the FTC has a chance to get a legitimate appeal because the TRO ends as of midnight tonight. But the important piece of all this wasn't yesterday. It's today where the TRO preventing the ABK deal expires at midnight and the FTC has asked the Ninth Circuit for emergency relief. Nothing in the U.S. will prevent this sale from happening if the FTC doesn't get this. Unfortunately, all of this looked a lot like the appeal on the outside, so you may have seen some folks report on it a bit strongly. Here's Forbes. The FTC gets steamrolled again, losing appeal to stop the Microsoft Activision deal. Eurogamer here originally called that Appeal denied as Microsoft Activision acquisition nears completion. completion. That now says motion denied after I tried to clarify it a little bit by tweet. This was an exhaust your remedy step where the loser in court asked the same court to change its mind. Now the FTC moves to the appeals court. But as we expected, they filed for that emergency relief again from a Charlie Intel tweet earlier today. Action needed by 11.59 p.m. on July 14th, 2023. Now, is there a chance that the Ninth Circuit actually gets to that today? There is a chance, never say never on these things, but I think it's unlikely either that they'll get to it or that the emergency relief will be granted. The FTC really did wait for months and months and months to even make this a federal case in the first instance. And certainly Microsoft has made the same arguments. We can see here Tom Warren from The Verge. Microsoft has just filed a response to the FTC's emergency motion at the Ninth Circuit. Microsoft says the FTC's claimed emergency is entirely of its own creation, arguing that the FTC didn't seek an injunction through federal court until six weeks before deal close. Microsoft also claims the FTC could have filed its request for emergency relief earlier, as Judge Corley sent a copy of the ruling to both the FTC and Microsoft on Monday, July 10th. The court should not mistake the FTC's litigation gamesmanship for an emergency meeting this court's deviation from the ordinary appellate process, says Microsoft in its filing. And yeah. Microsoft is right that the FTC has tried to get this right up against the termination date. But I don't think that the second part of this, as I discussed already, is as strong as the six weeks before deal close argument. So Microsoft has made the argument that you would expect it to make to the Ninth Circuit. But 
everybody will wait to see if the Ninth Circuit winds up doing anything with that emergency hearing. Now, on the other side of the Atlantic, things are happening. You may recall that on the day Judge Corley's preliminary injunction denial came down, both Microsoft and the UK's Competition and Markets Authority, CMA, agreed to pause their litigation. This was read by many, including myself, to indicate that Microsoft felt there was some chance to settle things with the CMA. Right Here's Brad Smith's statement. After today's court decision in the US, our focus now turns back to the UK. While we ultimately disagree with the CMA's concerns, we are considering how the transaction might be modified in order to address these concerns in a way that is acceptable to the CMA. That same day, CNBC wind up reporting on a proposed divestiture related to the CMA. Breaking news from CNBC's David Faber, Microsoft has offered to make small divestiture to meet obligations of the CMA, or as they said here, we got interesting commentary from both the CMA and Microsoft a couple of hours ago, indicating the two sides were in conversations essentially to try to restructure the transaction so that they would meet the objections of the CMA and therefore go to close. I'm told it's a discrete small divestiture selling some portion of Microsoft Activision combined. Unclear exactly what that is, that will in fact satisfy the CMA, or at least that they believe it will satisfy the CMA. That it, they believe is Microsoft here. Unfortunately for all of this news, the next day, The Verge reported that the CMA was not terribly thrilled with that reporting by CNBC. It says, whilst merging parties don't have the opportunity to put forward new remedies once a final report has been issued, they can choose to restructure a deal, which can lead to a new merger investigation. Microsoft and Activision have indicated that they are considering how the transaction might be modified, and the CMA is prepared to engage with them on that basis. These discussions remain at an early stage, and the nature and timing of next steps will be determined in due course. While both parties have requested a pause in Microsoft's appeal to allow these discussions to take place, the CMA decision set out in its final report still stands. But the rumor mill is still going, and since it makes no sense for Microsoft to have agreed to the appeal stoppage, remembering that the CMA has presently blocked the deal over lessened competition in the cloud and not console market, it is more than fair to assume that at least the American tech giant thinks a deal with the UK is close. And with today's news that the CMA is extending its timeline for a new review for special reasons, that new concessions have been offered by Microsoft. What form those will take and how UK gamers are to be affected are still open questions but it is safe to assume that Microsoft will be separating off some of its cloud infrastructure for operations in the UK. But if you thought that was all, you're wrong. That's not all. Yesterday also saw the interrogation of FTC boss Lena Khan by the US judiciary. As IGN reports here, some of the more biting comments were on Microsoft times ABK. But while some of the more conspiracy minded among you asked if their appeal was just being pursued to avoid questions in the house, I have to inform that I think it unlikely as the pending administrative action in August would have given them the same cover. We don't comment on ongoing actions. It seems that the FTC's aggression here is more of a new identity rather than a prophylactic for congressional interrogations of the boss. Do with that news what you will. Now, as IGN says here, some of the quotes are interesting. You seem to be losing quite a bit, and I don't say that to be disrespectful, but these are, after all, taxpayer funds. You are now 0-4 in merger trials. The average win rate for the FTC in the modern antitrust era is around 75%. So I have to ask, why are you losing so much? Now, I would say the reason they're losing so much is that they are trying to advance theories of antitrust law that are not otherwise precedential in the American judiciary, but that's not what they say. The court not only rejected your assertion of a likely anti-competitive effect, but found just the opposite. Kylie said, the record evidence points to more consumer access. So why should Americans have faith in your judgment when this Biden appointed judge says you're so far off the mark? And again, I think the Biden reference there is to the fact that Lena Khan, the boss at the FTC, is also Biden appointed, is largely thought to be on at least the same grounds on the party side, that if this judge says you're so far off the mark, then we can evaluate you even further. But that's been a long part of the days the FTC has been having recently. Not a lot of wins, a lot of grilling in Congress, a lot of concerns about what their actual philosophies are, and with the CMA looking like they might well have something to consider from Microsoft and what we can only assume Microsoft believes is close to a settlement with that group, then the FTC becomes the last cheese standing alone in trying to block this deal. But we shall see in due time. As a last piece of news, Wall Street seems to believe the deal is in, 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 imminent 
with the NASDAQ pulling Activision Blizzard King from its indices starting on Monday. Now, you may have heard this reported early on a little bit incorrectly that it was being delisted from the exchange overall. That's not, in fact, the case. This is about indexes. What does that mean? Well, NASDAQ and other exchanges use indexes to measure the health of the overall economy. Members of an index undergoing one-time massive transformative change are removed because they throw off the nature of an index. NASDAQ says it takes a step where the transaction is imminent as determined by its index committee, right? Where the transaction is imminent as determined by the index management committee, you're not eligible to be as part of the index. So the fact that Activision is coming off on Monday is strongly suggestive of at least some people believing that the deal is very, very close to happening. So what happens next? That's what everybody's been asking me. First, the Ninth Circuit decides or fail to decide this emergency request today. And there's only so many hours left to go in the day. With a failure by the appeals court to decide or a flat denial, the TRO ends at midnight and Microsoft has the weekend and early week before the deal's natural termination to spend near $70 billion on Activision Blizzard King's outstanding stock. During this time, the Competition and Markets Authority of the UK will be evaluating whatever new structure for the deal MS has proposed to it, likely relating to the sale or divestiture of some of its cloud assets or rights. Even though the CMA will technically be blocking the deal during this evaluation, I suspect that if Microsoft thinks the sides are close enough through back channels or otherwise, they'd be willing to take the risk that their offer is rejected and close over the UK's block early next week. So while the flight's been bumpy and the plane lost its engines for a time there, it might just be coming in for a landing very soon. And if for some reason that's not the case, I'd expect Microsoft and Activision Blizzard King to renegotiate their termination date, perhaps with a pricing or breakup fee sweetener slash increase, the one might not proving necessary. Also worth noting, Wall Street seems quite positive on the outcomes here, with the ABK share price inching ever closer to the deal's $95 amount, right? Folks that own a share of Activision Blizzard King, if this deal goes through, get $95 for that share. So the fact that it's already trending at $90 is suggestive of a strong belief that this deal is in fact going to close, but we shall see. I hope you all found this analysis helpful. And again, if you enjoyed this video or would like to support the channel, please consider liking, subscribing, following the support links below, getting a YouTube membership, or just sharing this video with friends. We can't do it without supports from folks like you and folks like Karen Paulson. So thank you so very, very much. Virtual Legality is a YouTube video series with audio podcast versions presented as commentary and for education and entertainment purposes only. It does not constitute legal advice and does not create an attorney-client relationship. If you have legal questions about the topics discussed, please consult your own legal counsel.